0: It's Friday, February 2nd, and the White House is ready for retribution. We start here. Sources say the Pentagon has its
1: marching orders and will launch a series of strikes. They want to find targets that are significant, that will hurt those militants. But is Iran
0: on the list of targets? Martha Raditz is in the Middle East with the latest. The mother of a school shooter makes her case. Are you a failure as a parent? I don't think I'm a failure as a parent. At what point do parenting decisions make you culpable in a murder? And life is a game of inches. I went from 5'9". Without shoes, I'm like 5'11 and a half, give or take. But would you go under the knife to get taller? From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. As of this morning, it's been five days and counting since a drone strike claimed the lives of three American troops. The first U.S. military deaths since this conflict in the Middle East began.
2: And he looked at me and he said, I'm sorry, Miss Moffitt, but Brianna was killed this morning in a drone attack.
0: When you have a deadly strike like this, it demands a response. But... What kind of response? And against whom? After all, while this appeared to come from militant groups in Iraq and Syria, they are directly sponsored by Iran. Who pays for our soldiers' lives? Well, after five days of waiting, it now appears the U.S. has a plan for retaliation. Apparently, it's no longer a case of if, but when and where. ABC's chief global affairs correspondent, Martha Raddatz, has made her way to Jordan, where these troops were killed in the first place. Martha, you've been speaking to sources. What should we expect
1: to happen here. I I think you can expect a multi-tiered, multi-country, multi-target retaliatory strike. I think it's gonna be very different from what we have seen in the past few months, but in many ways, very the same. President has made his decision about responding. Um, options were presented to him. He made his choices and in, uh, in his decisions, and, uh, and we're going to move out. They'll go after these militia groups where they can find them, certainly the ones they believe have been responsible for these attacks, and, and try to take them out and carefully, as the U.S. tries to do, avoid civilian casualties. I think that is number one. Uh, they do not want to kill any civilians. According to sources I have talked to, President Biden has deep misgivings about going after Iran itself. All we've heard from the president, from the administration for months is these are Iran-backed militias, these are Iran-backed militias, but they don't want this war to escalate. But if you look at the map, it really already has. The conflict has escalated. We've got fighting in the Red Sea, we've got fighting on the northern border of Israel. And we certainly have seen in Iraq and Syria, these militias targeting Americans, American forces, well over 165 times.
0: Well, and Martha, on one hand, it's only been a few days, right? It's been less than a week since this happened. On the other hand, it's so significant. The first American service member deaths in this entire conflict in the region We're battling with so many of these Iran-backed proxy groups. The question has kind of been, why has it taken so long to strike back? I mean, what's your sense?
1: I, I think this is one of the major reasons why this is so different. The U.S. always has target lists. They probably knew pretty quickly exactly who was responsible for this strike, but they want this one to be different.
3: It needs to be significant, it needs to be unambiguous, it
0: needs to actually cost Iran something. Because
1: they don't want one big show of force or one little pinprick strike, they want to find targets that are significant, that will hurt those militants in many ways. And that takes time, and it takes coordination. This is one of the most remote parts of Jordan. Syria is just behind me, about two miles. Iraq is off to my left. You know, Brad, we traveled up to the border of Syria and it is the most remote area. It is it is seriously like, like a moonscape up there. There are a few little villages. They want to make sure, especially this time, because deterrence, frankly, has not worked, that these targets are significant enough that it will hurt the militants or at least slow them down or at least avoid for some American forces more significant attacks on them. That's why it takes so long. They just want to be certain and have this mean something.
0: Yeah, and Martha, I mean, since you've been in the region and since you've been talking to your sources, what have we learned about the attack in the first place? Because we say Iran-backed militants, but like you said, the Pentagon probably knew early on more specifically who this group was. I mean, do we know at this point which militant group this was and how
1: they carry this out? One of the first things they had was physical evidence. They had the parts of that drone. So you had forensics, and they have now determined that it's a particular type of drone uh, made in Iran. The Pentagon sent out pictures of those weapons showing they were from Iran. This, this is uh, a show that they put on TV. Brad, I talked to the Iranian foreign minister uh, just a little over a week ago, and, and he denied that they ever provide weapons for these things, but they clearly do. The U.S. has seen it, I've seen displays of those weapons myself. So they know that that drone was made in Iran, essentially. They know where they believe it was launched from. It was clearly either Syria or Iraq, because that, according to officials of the countries that we're going to go after, and possibly Yemen as well. So that attack, that drone coming, uh, it's, it's very sad to say, but we also know that the air defenses at that base did not catch it. They thought that it was a US surveillance drone and that's one of the reasons that drone that Iranian made drone got through and these groups all have different names but they are essentially under one umbrella who are basically just militants who are going after Americans who are going after western forces they want US forces out of Syria out of Iraq and this is also how they're trying to get them out of there
0: right and 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 that mistake, as far as we can tell, it was a mistake of, of of not shooting down that drone when they had the chance. Of course, now we see the aftermath of that, right? Three dead American service members, dozens injured, and now uh, potential strikes coming their way in the Middle East. All right, Martha Raddatz, they're in Jordan right now. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. Next up on Start here, people are dead, but she says she wouldn't do anything different. Some dramatic testimony after the break. Yesterday in Michigan, the mother of a school shooter took the stand, not in his defense, but in her own. I in your
1: name. It's Jennifer
4: Crumbly.
0: And Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of Ethan Crumbly, who killed four classmates and injured several others, has pleaded not guilty to several unprecedented counts of involuntary manslaughter. If convicted, she would be the first parent ever held responsible in this way after a mass shooting. But prosecutors say her actions were just that egregious. ABC's Trevor Alt has been on the scene in Michigan covering this. Trevor, what did she say? Well, first
6: of all, Brett, she says that she was horrified at what her son did. She made that very clear that she's still having to come to terms with the fact that her son harmed people, killed four of his classmates. In fact, she explicitly said, I wish he would have killed us instead.
1: Do you believe you are the victim here?
3: Um, I don't want to say that I'm a victim because I do not want to disrespect those families that truly are the victims on this, Um, but we did lose a lot.
6: She also is adamant that she was not aware of the many red flags that the prosecution has laid out leading up to this shooting, so much so that she says when she looks back on how it all unfolded, she doesn't think she would do anything differently, uh, which is going to strike a lot of people... As a pretty wild thing to say, given she's on trial for involuntary manslaughter, her and her husband, the first parents in American history to face these kinds of charges after a child commits a mass shooting.
3: Are you a failure as a parent? I don't think I'm a failure as a parent, but at that time...
6: Um, Essentially what we saw in court yesterday just from her defense attorney questioning her, Brad, is that they took a long time establishing the relationship of her as a mother. They had a lot of photos of family trips that they went on over the years and him growing up and then talking about how they have a little bit less photos as he gets older because teenagers are just that age. She describes herself as caring and attentive. They talked about times that she would take her son to the doctor.
3: I trusted him. And I felt like I had an open door and he can come to me
2: about anything.
6: And then we kind of get into the area where her story splits from the stories that we have heard from the prosecution over the past week and a half as they've laid out their case, mainly over what should these parents have been aware of leading up to this shooting.
3: I did not go through his text messages. Um, I didn't have a reason to.
6: She says that he at no point asked to go to therapy and that at no point did it seem like he was having any kind of mental health crisis that would require her to get help, Brad. Well, Trevor, I'm trying to figure out how much of this is sort of about
0: gun safety and taking responsibility for the guns that you own, that your child, and how much of it is just about parenting techniques. Like, Is it illegal to not be proactive with your kid
6: about stuff like this, I guess? Right, and that's exactly why this case is going to be extremely difficult to get a conviction because you have a defense attorney who readily admits her client was not a perfect parent and made a lot of mistakes. I think that your the crux of your question of parenting versus gun safety and how they intertwine could be largely divided among how the two parents are being tried. So Jennifer Crumbly's up first. Her husband James Crumbly is going to get tried for the same crimes uh, in March. Her trial's largely been about parenting and missing warning signs, and while they did talk about the weapons, the fact that the parents bought the gun for their son, we do know that the dad, James Crumbly, actually made the purchase, and on the stand yesterday, Jennifer Crumbly made a point to say it wasn't her area to make sure the guns were secure. That fell to her husband. Of course, we now know that gun, he was able to get access to it, and the two other weapons, that the parents had that were found at home by investigators. Investigators testified they were kept in a gun safe with the code 000. Mm -hmm. I imagine that is gonna be hit even harder by prosecutors in the husband's trial. What I think you're gonna see today when it comes to cross-examination of Jennifer Crumbly, and I think it could be quite brutal, is hammering her over and over about her son's cries for help, about him writing in his journal, my parents won't listen to me. Five,
1: can you read this passage, please?
7: In this one, the shooter writes, I want help, but my parents don't listen to me and I can't get any help. The shooter writes, I want to shoot up the school so badly.
6: Prosecutors are going to take this woman, this mother who testified for hours yesterday about how she cared for her son and ask her in front of the jury, how did you miss this? And they believe the fact that she did miss it is so grossly negligent that it is criminal bread. Right. the the difference
0: between being an imperfect parent as the mothers claiming versus essentially being a danger to others the father like you said he's on trial later this year we'll see what happens in both of these cases trevor alt in michigan thanks so much thank you brett so back in the day i was on the dating apps like you do and i listed my height as 5 foot 9 which is a tiny, tiny fib Okay, I'm closer to 5'8 five, 5'8 eight. Five, eight and a quarter But you never adjust your height down, right? In our society, guys always want to be taller And this gets reinforced everywhere From the 90s, when I was growing up From my man Ski-Lo
4: Hello? I wish I was a little bit taller I wish I was a baller
0: To just last year, from Olivia Rodrigo foot two, And I'm like, dude,
5: nice try
0: to how we talk about pop psychology, but there's nothing you can change about your height. Or is there? How tall were you? 5'9". That's the average height for an American male. I'm not average. I don't like to be average. This week on Impact by Nightline, ABC's Ashan Singh went behind the scenes of a growing industry, leg lengthening surgery. And unlike so many other cosmetic surgeries, this one is absolutely dominated by men who wish they were a little bit taller. Ashan is with us now. Oshin Leg lengthening surgery, really? This is a thing, yes, Brad. It is the new kind of viral sensation
5: where men are actually able to get taller, they are literally adding inches to their uh femurs and tibias in order to be able to achieve that uh tall, dark, and handsome look that has been sought after for so many decades. And Brad, I gotta say, I'm guilty of it too. I'm 5'11, but you know, I'm telling people I'm six feet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but- <laughs> But wh- why Why would you go to the lengths of getting surgery? Like You talk to people who got this procedure. What? Do, why? This is a real issue of insecurity
5: amongst a ton of males in our society. And, and it comes from this perception that tall people are more successful. Tall people have a lot more of an easier time. It contributes to your confidence, your romantic, your
4: dating life. You have to try harder. You have to dress better. You have to make more money. You have to do something better because... Just having the height advantage is like paramount. We spoke to individuals who are
5: who had gotten the surgery, who are about to get the surgery, and we met two really interesting gentlemen who are could not be more different, Brad. I went from 5'9". With, without shoes, I'm like 5'11 and a half, give or take. You have Hugo Ramirez. He's a, a businessman who, who works between Miami and Houston, and he is very much emblematic of the cosmetic surgery life. I mean, I just did my face. You just did your face? Yeah, I just did my face. What did you do? I had a jaw implant and chin implant, and I had them replaced it, mm. and then I had them tighten my neck. This guy's gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of surgery and procedures done all over his body, not limited just to his height. It's the biggest rush. Is that what you get from doing these? Procedures? Yeah, is this, this is the biggest rush ever. What was it about being taller than? The respect.
6: I had to earn my respect. Huh. People are taller, they don't have to earn the respect. I mean, you could be an idiot and be tall and you get respect.
5: On the other hand, we have Jerry, who's this uh, travel nurse in-, in Mobile, Alabama, and you see the more practical side of this surgery.
4: Today, I measured in at 5'5 uh, five, five on the dot.
5: He's been uh, under average height his whole life. And this is something that has weighed on him heavily. He says that it has affected his dating life. It has affected his confidence.
4: You know, sometimes I want to reach stuff in the aisles of a Walmart and you just can't because you're short and you got to get on your tippy toes. And I feel like it's sometimes embarrassing.
5: This is a procedure that he has
4: saved up um, in order to be able to get done. So this surgery set me back uh, I believe it's around seventy five thousand dollars just to be able to get to average height,
5: which is five, eight, five, nine in the United States it is something that this procedure allows someone
0: like Jerry to, to realize. OK, so how does it work? Right. Like what the actual surgery involves if you're adding length to your bone, does that mean you're like you're breaking your bone to do this? Yeah, so there's this doctor,
5: uh, Dr. Kevin W. Prashad in Las Vegas.
7: You know, so the concept of limb lengthening has been around probably 75, 80 years. Uh, and we've been applying it to pediatric deformities and kids with short legs or even in traumatic patients who might get into an accident, one leg ends up shorter or deformed. He so
5: runs limb plastics and it has become sort of the leader in offering leg lengthening surgery as an elective cosmetic surgery.
7: All right, morning, Jerry. How are you doing? How are you doing, Dr.? All right, how you feeling? Good, good, ready to get this started.
5: When we connected with Jerry and he was looking into getting this leg lengthening surgery, he decided to go with Dr. Debbie Prasad.
7: We use your own natural bone that you have. And what you do is you just, you know, you implant a device into the hollow part of the bone, um, and then you create a small break into the bone. And then that device responds to a remote control that the patients use to slowly lengthen the bone uh, as they kind of pr- uh, proceed. That nail can lengthen approximately 3.2 inches, and that's where you get your gain of height from. Yeah, we're all set i think the room's all set up uh and we're ready to go all right, let's Okay. right all right let's get you
5: back there so we followed jerry to las vegas um as he's about to undergo the surgery we are all the way with him into the operating room fall fall the tip of it down when you're watching the surgery you definitely hear that hammer uh cracking away at the bone in order to create the the separation That's right. But he claims that it's just creating a small perforated uh, uh, dotted line similar to that on a paper towel. And they're creating a small break in the bone. And then he just puts a rod in there. It's going to be
7: a touch more. X-ray.
5: And then for uh, up to 30 to 60 days, he's increasing the patient's height by a millimeter. uh, And that rod is basically growing and they just do it through an app. But when you're in there, man, you are hearing that bone being hammered at and... It, it, it is intense. It is intense.
0: Wait, yeah, it does sound. It sounds not just intense. It sounds like violent, right? Like are I mean, are there health risks to this, Ashen, when you're messing like with your own bone structure? Yeah,
5: there definitely are health risks that are associated with a procedure like this because first of all, when it comes to it being an elective or a cosmetic procedure, it's relatively new.
3: These are still risky procedures and risky tools and many of them still need to be removed after the lengthening has completed, which of course is another surgery with its own risks and benefits.
5: And our own Dr. Darian Sutton really breaks down that these guys are getting these procedures done but we don't know what the next 5, 10, 15 years of their bodies are going to look like.
3: They can include damage to nearby structures, for example, damage to muscles, damage to ligaments and tendons, and even permanent nerve damage.
5: The the recovery process for a procedure like this is definitely intense it takes weeks if not months for the patients to get back on their feet they're limited to walkers they're going through intense rounds of uh of physical therapy and all types of recovery processes to just to be able to walk normally again
4: i do know physically it's going to be very demanding on me but um nervous now just because i'm so set in stone
5: but when it comes to the critics and people sort of questioning whether or not a medical professional should even be offering this procedure, Doctor D really points to the life-changing moments that he thinks he's providing to his patients.
7: When you look at it from my perspective, and you see these patients, and you see the impact it is, it has on these patients, and you see how much it improves their lives, and you see these patients, you know, they just seem so so grateful for it, and on the other side, they just seem so happy that they under, underwent the surgery. It's, it's one of the most rewarding surgeries I do.
0: It's bizarre though, Oshin, because like you want to ask, like, is it really so bad to be short or average height? Is that really so detrimental? Yeah, Brad, I don't think it is that bad to be short. In fact, I think right now,
5: it is cool to be a short king. You look at guys like uh, uh, Dave Franco, Timothy Chalamet, even Kevin Hart, man. He's the biggest man in Hollywood. Right now, it is hot to be short. It is cool to be a short king. That said, I'm not rushing to get my legs reduced anytime soon. I don't like to be average. I want to be beyond what I could be. Mm-hmm. And Brad, you won't believe this. When we sat down with Hugo and he had just finished his intense months-long recovery process, he said he still wants three more inches. Do you have a goal? Like, is there an end, a six, finish six, line? 6'3", honestly, six, I know I could go to 6'4". Yeah, what's your dream height? 6'3", uh, would be
3: uh, my dream height.
0: Wow, oh my gosh. Okay, so like the, the short King hashtag not having an effect on everyone. Uh, Oshan Singh with this incredible piece on Impact by Nightline. That's also streaming on Hulu right now. Uh, Oshan, great reporting. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Really appreciate you. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, this owl is a real who's who. I'm telling you, you want to stick around. One last thing is next. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers.
1: There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him.
0: For chilling true crime stories. Follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Everyone loves an underdog story, but what about an underbird story? Now, are you a birder, Bill? You seem to know a lot about birds. (laughs) Like, what? How did you get so invested in this story?
3: Well, uh... I'm not a birder, per se, uh, but uh, I do like celebrity-type
0: birds. That's ABC's Bill Hutchinson talking about what's perhaps become New York City's most famous fugitive. Flacco the
3: owl is a Eurasian eagle owl, and what's uh, rare about him is he is believed to be the only Eurasian eagle owl on the loose in the wilds of North America. And the interesting part about Flacco is his story
0: starts with a crime. Until last year, Flacco the Owl had lived his entire life in the Central Park Zoo. But exactly one year ago today, someone cut a hole through his cage.
3: And uh, he just walked out of the cage, walked through the hole that was cut into the mesh lining of his
0: cage and uh, bolted into the wilds of uh, New York City. Flacco has become a bona fide celebrity in Manhattan. Ooh. Birders watch him pop up in various trees, but he started spreading his wings further. Soon he alighted on the sidewalk on Fifth Avenue. And that just shocked people, it
3: drew a crowd, also drew the NYPD, who um, didn't seem to really know what to do with him at first. And, They put out some caution tape to sort of cordon him off so that people could get close to him. And then they put a cage out on the sidewalk, thinking, I guess, that he was going to just surrender.
0: That didn't happen, of course. Flacco flew away. And over the last year, he started exploring other parts of town. He gets around. He's been uh, not just in
3: Central Park, but down in the Lower East Side. He started to uh, roost Or perch in private gardens, on um, terraces, uh, on people's window ledges. Oh my god, you're so beautiful.
6: (gasps) So beautiful. I was in my kitchen and I have my phone in my hand. And I look over to the window and there's an owl.
0: One of the reasons he's flying in these wider and wider circles is he's likely looking for a mate. What he doesn't know is... There's no mate out there for him. He's the only one of his kind in this part of the world. Scientists had worried that this, along with the fact that he'd never hunted in the wild, would put him at risk. But instead, after a year on the loose, Flacco's thriving. They pretty much gave up
3: on capturing him maybe two weeks after he escaped. Right now, they've decided just to let him be a free bird. He proved them all wrong. Very quickly, actually, he, uh, he was able to adapt to his new environment in a free world and learn to catch rats on his own. And uh, New York City has a very, really bad rat problem. So anything that could exterminate that is is a welcome in New York.
0: The following has steadily risen, not just from New Yorkers, but around the world. People have been sharing videos of Flacco's location, sightings of him. He's even become a muse for writers, photographers, and artists. Our reporter, Bill Hutchinson, has painted a series of Flacco portraits, these vividly colorful depictions of the owl in various scenarios, with construction workers and Fifth Avenue shoppers.
3: I think people like the underdog story. And he he was the underdog, definitely, because nobody thought he could survive out there. And he did. And he showed resilience, and that sort of enamored him to people's interest in cheering for him to be free.
0: One of my favorite honorary New Yorkers is the author E.B. White. He wrote about animals. You probably know Charlotte's Web. E.B. White once said about New York that people born here take the city for granted. The commuters give it a sense of restlessness. But then there are the outsiders, the transplants, the ones who came here roaming the city in quest of something bigger. Those, he said, give the city its passion. That's where I think has rallied people around Flacco. Of course, if you were to ask him about his celebrity status, he'd probably just play it modest and say, who, me? blown away by Bill's portraits, by the way. You can see them in his story on abcnews.com. Just look for his reporting on the one-year anniversary of Flacco's Freedom. Start Here is produced by Kelly Therese, Jen Newman, Brenda Selinas-Baker, Vika Aronson, Cameron Shirtavian, Anthony Ali, Madeline Wood, and Tara Gimble. Ariel Chester is our social media producer. Josh Cohan is director of podcast programming. I'm our managing editor. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Thanks to Lakia Brown, John Newman, and Liz Alessi. Special thanks this week to Jonah Haskell, Chris Berry, Dana Schaefer, Lion Caldera, Eric Strauss, and Ann Flaherty. I'm Brad Milley. See you next week.
3: As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning.
5: First, though, it's the news, stupid.
3: It is the
6: economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair,
2: stupid. In 1992, one of the best known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election?